The Guardian. Hello, assalamu alaikum, and welcome to the March edition of Islamophonic, putting the ah into a stuck for Allah. In this month's show, we head to Liverpool. We hear from the coolest non-Muslim Muslim in the world. And we talk to the author of a revolutionary book that's about to feel the full force of the Oprah effect. In the studio, we have an Abrahamic panel, a holy trinity of guests from the world's best religions. We have the best-looking Christian in Britain, Jonathan Bartley, <laughs> who runs a religious think tank. Hello, Jonathan. Hi. Uh, we also have Rabbi Aaron Goldstein from the liberal Judaism movement. Hi. Just how liberal are you, Rabbi? Uh, me? I'm very liberal. <laughs> <laughs> and we also have Zaid Hassan, who was named as a Muslim leader of tomorrow. He's a newlywed. How long have you been married, Zaid? A couple of days. Okay, <laughs> there's location for you. Mm. Now, journalists are always accused of being lazy and London-centric. Not me. I went to Liverpool, the European capital of culture. First up was a visit to the main mosque, where I met Abdul Abadwi to find out what was going on with one of the oldest established Muslim communities in the country. My grandfather was Ali Hizam, Sheikh Ali Hizam, who helped build the mosque here and set up the British society. So he was one of the first Muslim leaders, helped build the mosques in Sheffield, South Shields, Cardiff, London. So I used to travel with him as a kid and the photographs of him with the old King George and Queen Elizabeth for the Muslims who died on the merchant navies that people seem to forget. Now, there's a very ambitious expansion going on of the current mosque building, but it hasn't always been that big, has it? It started out as quite a modest room. It did. I mean, it started out as what people would call a zawiya, which is basically a small prayer room that was in a guest house, supported by people from the Muslim communities who were seamen. That eventually became what we would call a, a zawiya, and it was from about 1940 my grandfather had set that up. And then eventually we got the permission to build the mosque in Hatherley Street. I think it was 1967 or thereabouts. But really, we're in a vacuum because the local authority will not give us permission to build a much bigger mosque. We've literally got thousands and thousands of Muslims now from all over the world. Two things. How many people can get into that mosque at the moment? And why does Liverpool appeal to such diverse nationalities? I think your friend was saying that there are at least 85 nationalities represented in Liverpool. Liverpool is an, an old historic city and it's always had a maritime past. And so many people came here. Britain had a huge colony, as we know. So we've got thousands of Malaysians here. We've got people from parts of Africa and the same with the Arab community. And then you've got the Somali community, the Yemeni community, Pakistani, Bangladeshi, etc., etc., uh, Indonesian and Malaysian. You look at people from Chechnya, you look at people from Albania. You, you go on and on. There's probably Muslims here for over five or 600 years because of the slavery past. But we don't have a record of that. And I think that's a beauty about this particular masjid Absolutely. because I think this particular masjid must be the only masjid within the UK that reflects the Ummah because there are so many different nationalities. That was Abdul Abadwi and his friend Abdul Salam who go regularly to the Hatherley Street Mosque. Now it was time to head across town to find out about another construction project. Liverpool is also home to Britain's first mosque. Yes, the city that gave us Stephen Gerrard and Teardrop Explodes also gave us our first prayer room back in 1889. More than 100 years later, some enterprising individuals are trying to raise money to restore it to its former glory. I met one of them, Barrister Zia Chowdhury, at the rather dilapidated site. 
So, tell me about this building. It doesn't look very impressive at the moment. It's not. We've been lying vacant for several years now. I mean, is the structure still intact? The you structure. don't need to do external work. We don't need to do anything with the main buildings, and we can't because it's a listed building. Right, okay. So we've got restrictions anyway. The roof, a lot of damage was done because some enterprising individual managed to climb onto the roof and steal a load of lead Great. And, and tiles. <laughs> As for the rest of it, it's, you know, it does need a lot of work doing on it, but the foundations are solid and structurally it's solid. I rather foolishly asked him to take me on a tour of the building. <laughs> oh, I'll just push it to. Right, so... So this is 19th century? It, it is 19th century, <clears throat> and it was in the 19th century that it was a mosque. It was in 1889 yeah. that it was a mosque. But as you can see, a lot of these panels... And this door, for example, these have been added later. Yeah, that doesn't look like it's from 1889. Oh, it's cold. It's freezing. Oh, (laughs) so this is two terrace buildings? It's actually three, eight, nine and ten. Right, Uh, okay. They're the ones that were the formed part of the original mosque. And we say original mosque, but there was a lot going on here. Mm. He had a mosque towards the back, but he also had classes here, a museum, a science lab, Mm. a library, and all sorts of activity going on here. And that's one of the things that the Abdullah Quilliam Society that it's quite keen to emphasise is that look it wasn't just a mosque where people went and prayed this guy was so active in the community and that's the spirit of Islam that we need to try and you know revitalise that we shouldn't just be praying and not contributing and so you know we've got to knuckle down get some events organised get some funds in and it's the fundraising that is the big problem First big question how much is it going to cost and the second question is How long is it going to take? In relation to cost, we've had estimates up to around about two and a half million. Oh my goodness me. Because it's a listed building. Now, that two and a half million figure puts a lot of Muslims off because they look at this place and think, three three terraces, you know, what are we going to do with that? And you can can build a huge fancy mosque for that kind of money. (laughs) And, And to be fair, they've got a point. But what we're saying is that this isn't about building a huge fancy mosque. This is about reclaiming heritage. You've got to latch on to something like this and say, well, hang on, here's something that in the 19th century was a very progressive you know, example of Islam in this country and the only mosque set up by an Englishman, a white Englishman. How can we as Muslims just let that be forgotten? Yeah. Is so, it safe to go up those stairs or will I fall through the wood? Um, I'll go up first. So All right, so you fall the... Yeah. You know, if I die on a job, I think my family gets something like £50,000. It's not bad. I mean, it's more than they get while I'm alive. So, <laughs> how much money have you raised? I mean, I think it's it's under a hundred thousand. It's under a hundred thousand. Where's the money come from? Has it come from local fundraising events where yeah. we've had um, events specifically to raise funds and, right. and people, you know? But again, with them, you know, they say as well. Well, you know, don't want to fund this. I don't want to fund it. For example, the Liverpool Mosque yeah. is undergoing you know, a big extension program. It is. I've just come. And, from and, you know, and they raised hundreds of thousands of pounds yeah. in very short notice because people thought, yes, this is our mosque. Yes. This is where we go to pray. We'll give money to it. Yeah. But here, it's not going to be a big mosque. So, how in, many people could you squeeze in for Friday prayers then? I would have said you'd struggle to do more than a hundred. To be perfectly honest. Now, I'm not being funny. You seem like a nice guy. But I would put my money on, on the big mosque in Hatherley Street. As a mosque, that's, as yeah, a mosque would. you would. As a mosque, definitely. Yeah. But that's why we're saying that don't put your money into this as a mosque, right. but as a heritage centre. This is like a death trap. It's like a death trap. It is. Okay. Is there flooring? Yes, there's okay. flooring. This seems fairly solid. 
What kind of things will you have here? Are you oh, going to have a science lab? Like, if Abdul not a science lab, did? certainly a big emphasis on, on lifelong learning. Right. Because uh, especially given the role that Muslims have got to play in you know, in educating others about Islam, mm. this would seem to be the ideal sort of setup, especially when you think of you know, my pet project, Cordoba, mm. and you think of how much learning was emphasised then. That's the spirit that we need to reclaim now, and this would be a good sort of centre to do it rather than a conventional mosque. Well, I'm sitting in the studio and I survived to tell my tale. Jonathan Bartley, there seem to be tons of churches for every Christian denomination. Do you think oversupply weakens the roots of a religious community? I mean, it's fascinating to hear that conversation because I was thinking about the, the Christian situation. You've got all these churches, a lot of them falling apart, some having to be sold off, uh, desperate for money uh, from the, the National uh, Heritage uh, Fund. You know, some come through the National Lottery, some come through government. But at the same time, you get these new churches emerging, particularly uh, black churches, mm. and they can raise you know hundreds of thousands of pounds at the drop of a hat for a new building. Uh, and meanwhile, you've got these old buildings lying empty. You know, fascinating parallels uh, between Islam and Christianity. But of course, I guess Christianity, because it's got that hundreds and hundreds of years and, and magnified uh, a lot more in this country, you know, you can see perhaps where Islam's going to be uh, in, in a few hundred years itself. I mean, also, when you talk about national lottery funding, I mentioned this to Zia and he said, oh, we're not sure about national lottery. Some people think it's gambling. But of course, I guess the state is much more willing to help out a cathedral in distress. Well, a lot of the, the funding does come from the National Lottery mm, now, and there was just gambling. a debate. Well, it is gambling. And gambling. you think of the churches, you know, <laughs> railing against the super casino, yeah. uh, you know, firing on them. all cylinders against it. I, I mean, I think it's downright hypocrisy myself, and I you know, don't mind saying so. Um, but they just had a debate, for example, in Leeds Diocese uh, last week, uh, where a motion was tabled that they shouldn't take lottery funding, mm. was defeated by 96 votes to four. Actually, it wasn't even a, not taking lottery funding, that the church should advise against taking lottery funding. Uh, and it was you know, unanimously defeated. And the argument is simply, we've got to have the money. This is the only source uh, that we can get it from. Therefore, you know, reality dictates that we have to go for it. Rabbi, who pays for synagogues? And how easy is it to open up a new synagogue? The Jewish community pays for it itself. And uh, very interested in that uh, comment as well that you had, Jonathan, because actually my home synagogue, I was brought up in a church but actually it was a synagogue. So as a Christian community dwindled, we actually bought the property uh, and turned it into a synagogue. We then moved on from there and the prop was used for other things. Uh, But I'm very interested in terms of the idea of what you do with a site. Firstly, property prices mean that it's very difficult now to buy a new place or just to build a new place. And equally, I'm not too sure if it's the right way to go as well. Surely we want to be reusing property that we have. Obviously, you want it to have the uh, draft extractors and everything out of the insulation, uh, but surely that's a really good way to go. So if it's a possibility to uh, retain a heritage site, then go for it. I mean, you said the Jewish community pays for a synagogue. I mean, there are liberal synagogues, there are reformed synagogues, orthodox, modern orthodox, Haredi. But can you have too much of a good thing, I guess? I mean, would you be very annoyed if somebody set up a new liberal synagogue on your turf? We wouldn't do that because it'd be daft. Uh, but, <laughs> but, but within uh, Northwood, my uh, home little village, we actually have two synagogues, one an Orthodox synagogue and one a liberal synagogue. We're actually an example of best practice where we are one Jewish community but two congregations. And there's a very good Jewish joke. You always have to have two synagogues in your town, the one that you go to, the one you wouldn't set foot in. <laughs> um, so, uh, uh, you know, one needs the diversity within the community and has to respect that within each religion mm. there are different denominations. And we all need our own style as well. 
we have a very modern building. We want to use it for many things. We have Pilates classes and yoga and everything else going on, as well as the prayer side and the culture side and the education side as well. But in a sense, that's what you know a religious community building should be about. It should be for the whole community, shouldn't it? It should be about welcoming the people around you in for activities, not just the, the services or the prayer times. My dad would disagree with you. He thinks you should go to a mosque, you should pray, you should go home. End of. Really? Yeah. Say, so, let me turn to you. <laughs> Why are Muslims obsessed with having mosques for racial and sectarian groups? In Southampton, which uh-huh. is where I grew up, there aren't that many Muslims, but we have about 12 mosques. We yeah. don't need that many. But yeah. there's one for Bangladeshis, there's one for Indians, mm. there's one for Brailvis, there's one for Mirpurs. Yeah. Why? I mean, in Liverpool, there's only one yeah. and a half mosques, but yeah. there seems to be greater unity because of it. From my point of view, I mean, a mosque is a space that supports your culture. And where are the spaces that support our culture and our identities? So for me, there's this obsession, or at least this is what I can see, there's this obsession with space. And space is essentially territorial. We have spaces for schools, we have spaces for universities, we have spaces where we go work. We've sort of delimited the use of spaces. And I think mosques are one of the few spaces for minority Muslim minority communities within the United Kingdom that they actually control the space and they can do what they want within that space. There's freedom in that space, theoretically. That would be one answer. Do you feel the ethos of that space should be inclusive? Should it be welcoming or should it be very much, you know, concentrated on the core community? Well, I mean, urban planners will tell you there's this strange kind of obsession with using spaces for one function. And, you know, the latest trend in urban planning is multi-use spaces. So, again, I think uh, a mosque, as the guy was alluding to, can be a multi-use space. It Mm. can be a space that's used for learning and so on. Unfortunately, the council and the state often dictates how spaces are allowed to be used. So can you use a mosque or a heritage centre as a classroom? Well, no, you can't. You can use it informally, but you can't use it in any formal sense. You raise a very interesting point in terms of space there. In uh, Torah, in in the books, as we uh, go through them, it's fascinating that uh, you only get the commandments to actually build a place, a space, after the Israelites had built the golden calf, Mm. as in saying, we just can't quite believe all of this. We don't have enough faith to quite take all of this in. We're not like angels. And so a space, a synagogue, a mosque, a church, satisfies a human need. And it's identifying what that human need is in each generation. So I'm fascinated to hear that in Liverpool, Mm. in the 19th century, there was a place which actually does the kind of stuff that goes on in my liberal synagogue Mm. today. Mm. I think that's that's mind-blowing. I, mean, I always think that, 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 that when you start to build your buildings that are purpose-built for the community, I think you lose something. And when I, you look at the early Christians as, as a Jewish sect, you know, they met in people's houses and there was this wonderful vibrancy, this integration. And then the buildings started to emerge and they got grander and they got bigger and the power got centralised. And to me, that was the beginning, if you like, of the, of the downward trend in the church, which we're still recovering from in the mm. West. OK, well, from Liverpool, we wend our way to Nottingham where, in a rare trip to the UK, Professor John L. Esposito was delivering this year's first lectures. Normally, he's in Washington, where he's Professor of International Affairs and Islamic Studies at Georgetown University. He is also the director of Prince Al-Walid bin Dalal's Centre for Muslim-Christian Understanding at Georgetown. He's just published a book, Who Speaks for Islam? What a Billion Muslims Really Think. It's been billed as the largest and most comprehensive study of Muslims worldwide. It features the results of 50,000 hour-long face-to-face interviews with Muslims living in Muslim-only or Muslim-majority countries. What I think is going to be most useful is that in many ways it counters some of the conventional wisdom. For example, the classic question, you know, why do they hate us? They hate us because of our democracy, our freedoms, etc. What you discover is that vast majorities of Muslims, in fact, admire and want the freedoms that we have. 
at the same time that they resent our foreign policies, which they often see as threatening to interfere, invade, or occupy. But it gets beyond the stereotype that most Muslims don't want freedoms. And it counters both what the authoritarian governments do, as well as some of the rhetoric that's occurred in the past from President Bush and even the former Prime Minister Tony Blair. Can you give us some examples of that rhetoric and also, as you seem to be suggesting, the misconceptions that Muslim governments have about their own people? Well, I think that when you look at Muslim governments, for example, historically and certainly even post 9-11, many of them have tended to become far more authoritarian. Now, there are others that have moved in terms of the democratic process, but post 9-11 has enabled governments like Egypt, uh, Mr. Musharraf in Pakistan, and others to take a more authoritarian stand and often to say that they're doing it to contain extremists and acting as if they're protecting their country when in fact you see that majorities of their populations do want more political participation, do want the rule of law. And I think also uh, when you see the rationale often um, that the American administration is used, uh, that is we're liberating Iraq and we're bringing democracy But then you wonder why is anti-Americanism growing? And and one of the reasons is that for many people, they want democracy, but they don't want to feel it has to be an American brand of democracy. Now, how did you decide who should be interviewed? I mean, it's a huge undertaking. You started in, what, 2001? You finished in 2007? That's... Well, Gallup has been doing interviews in many countries, but in the last year, Gallup launched the Gallup World Poll. And Gallup has basically polled roughly 90% of the world's countries in terms of what they call well-being. How do you feel about your life, your political situation, your economic, your religious, your social situation? Within that, they have polled uh, more than 35 Muslim countries. And it represents more than 50,000 interviews. So it's the largest, most comprehensive poll of the Muslim world ever done. Why do we need something like this? Well, the battle of the experts, it's very politicized, you know, listening, let's say, to John Esposito or listening to Professor X, and they have diametrically opposed positions. They all have good credentials, and they're telling you how large numbers of people think, feel, and what they believe. Well, now we literally say, let the data lead the discourse. Mm. We now have a database that represents the voices of 90% of the world's Muslims. This represents and is accurate within plus or minus 3%. Wow. Um, I just wanted to talk to you about the term politically radicalized. You say that identification as politically radicalized doesn't mean they commit acts of violence, but that they are a potential source for recruitment or support for terrorist groups. Correct. When you go on to talk about this group, I found myself identifying with the sentiments. I worry about American foreign policy. I worry that relationships between the Arab world and the West will never improve. I do not think the attacks on 9-11 or 7-7 were justified. And I know lots of people who like me who are politically active. Are you saying that you can't be politically active without being susceptible to violent extremism? No, I'm saying that, I mean, what's very interesting is everything that you said, the one variable where you will differ from a lot of people is that you don't live in the conditions that they live in. And therefore, what you really do see is that the politically radicalized, in addition to everything you said, are Mm -hmm. people who believe that democracy is the way to progress but they're very cynical about whether or not they're going to see that, both because of the nature of their governments, Mm. many of which is supported by the West, but also because of what they regard as a double standard practiced by the West when it comes to the promotion of democracy. And there are also people, by the way, who are individually more optimistic about their individual future, but they're more cynical 
about their future as a society because they emphasize a fear not only about security and extremism, which they're concerned about, but they also fear invasion, interference, occupation, and dependency. This is the group that one needs to target in terms of winning the minds and hearts or public diplomacy. Where is this group? Well, I mean, the group is found across the Muslim world. Okay. Yeah, this is where it's a great help or ought to be to policymakers because what it's really saying is, look, winning the minds and hearts in public diplomacy is not just about public relations. It's about what you do. If you continue to engage in the same kind of foreign policy, if you continue to have a strong Western imprint in the region that is seen as intrusive, then not only will anti-Americanism continue to be strong, but that elements of the population can become susceptible to recruitment by extremists. To what extent were Western Muslims involved with this survey, or did you just go for numbers? Most of it was countries that are either predominantly Muslim or significant minority. But polls were done uh, in uh, London, Germany, Mm. and in Paris. And Mm. so, but the initial thrust Mm. was to really look at the Muslim world. These are the countries that are most likely to be affected by foreign policy. That's right. And the US administration, rather than cushy old middle-class me moaning about the occupation in Palestine. That's right. Okay. (laughs) Professor, it's been a pleasure. Enjoy your time in the UK. Zay, do you know the professor's work? To what extent does his involvement impact on the credibility of this report? Well, he's a very credible figure. I think, yeah, his language is really, really interesting. Battle of the experts, using himself as the example. I was also shocked to hear that he thinks that the poll represents 90% of the world's Muslims. So I'd never heard of the poll before. You told me about it. It certainly doesn't represent my views. I don't think it's meant to. Well, I mean, I'm just responding to his statements. And obviously, the entire point of the poll is uh, legitimacy for decisions that are made, legitimacy for policy decisions, legitimacy for recommendations. So the fact that the poll is comprehensive, has covered thousands of people and so on and so forth, is effectively just a way of gaining legitimacy uh, for a set of positions. Mm. I mean, he seemed to be suggesting that it's not about Europe, it's about North Africa, the subcontinent, it's about the Middle East. Yeah, I think here we have, you know, democracy and microcosm, majority rules. We've got 90% of the world's Muslims. You know, there's a minority of Muslims in Europe. Where are their voices? Um, Their voices aren't important because they are a minority. I think it's a ridiculous way of conducting policy and research. Let's throw it over to Jonathan. You know, when you're talking about such big issues and such sensitive areas like political radicalisation and supporting violence and being susceptible to recruitment, do you think a survey is the best way? You know, eight out of ten Muslims said eh, eh. I think what it did for me reading the results was challenge a lot of preconceptions that I've heard around. Um, For example, you know, it isn't uh, those that are... Uh, radicalized perhaps towards violence or have a, a hatred it isn't a hatred of the west per se you know there's huge contrast between attitudes towards blair and bush on the one hand and germany and france on the other you know there's a clear delineation and that was really encouraging for me to hear that also i think your point is, is very important about radicalization that the radicalization doesn't necessarily mean violence there is a way of being political that didn't necessarily come across in the survey mm. to me uh, i wish it had come across more but also the the fact that the radicalization is happening not necessarily around economic factors wasn't clearly, you know, those that are in lower socioeconomic groups, for example, are more likely to be violent. You know, that 
is a, a myth that we's, has been chucked around a lot. It doesn't hold true, clearly, if you take the results of this survey. So there are some very interesting factors, I think, which will challenge a lot of people who, you know, let's face it, don't know a lot about Islam, and I include myself in that. <laughs> you described yourself as a radical Christian. Uh, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm pacifist. <laughs> I'm committed to peacemaking and reconciliation. But I class myself as a political radical. You know, I would happily uh, take part in a nonviolent direct action, for example, over issues of the environment or, uh, you know, went on the, the marches uh, against the invasion of Iraq. I would happily take, you know, part in the plowshares actions against British aerospace weapons that are about to be exported to Indonesia. Um, that, to me, is a radicalism, but it's a nonviolent radicalism. Mm. And I wish we could make a clearer delineation generally when we're talking about religion politics, radicalization has become a very dirty word. Uh, it implies uh, violence, mm. and, and it doesn't have to be. There's a very positive side to political radicalization, which we've seen, you know, on the Christian side in the involvement of Jubilee 2000 and laying the foundations for, camp, uh, for Make Poverty History. Uh, we've seen in the uh, bishop's opposition to the Iraq war and the opposition of the, of the wider church. You know, there's some real positive radicalization that perhaps we can work with here. Rabbi, there's a myth that Muslims are stupid barbarians, and this research seems to counter that. Muslims want technology, they want democracy. It does, and, and for me, the, the key word there was fear. Mm-hmm. The, the, a fear of the future. You know, what is there to look forward to? And in a sense, I can very much see where the West is playing both sides, and it just seems to be maintaining the counterbalance and keeping people in that fear. When people are in fear, they react in lots of different ways. And I, I just have a, a, a real concern about that. I, hear, I heard that and really felt for it. And I think it's very difficult for us sitting here in London to actually really properly empathise. Mm. You know, it's very in- interesting that the majority of the, the survey is on Muslims in Muslim-majority lands. We need to hear so much more about that uh, within this country, but also from Muslims within this country. And to hear and for each other to be able to explore in public the fears that people have in our society. Many people will say, we fear coming into London because we fear being blown up on a bus. Other people will say, well, we fear because Islamophobia or anti-Semitism or whatever it might be. For me, it's listening to each other. So I welcome this because it's an opportunity for us to hear another point of view, Mm. whether I agree with the direction and everything. Mm. Say, do you want to say something? I'm just curious. uh, Jonathan, you said the report challenges a lot of your preconceptions. Where do they come from? I mean, um, you talked about the myth of the Muslim as being barbaric and so on. Where do these preconceptions and these myths come from? You know, I I honestly think that we have a society that's characterized by social apartheid. They come from the media. They come. We have these preconceptions because we have no contact with each other. You know, we don't know how Muslims live. We don't know what they do for you know the living. What they do when they wake up in the morning. We have no idea. Do you know what it looks like when a Muslim prays, Jonathan? I do actually, because I was in the church two weeks ago, and a Muslim came in and prayed in the church, and he regularly uses the church to pray. Uh, to pray, Muslim pray. Yeah, a Muslim in a church, which I thought was fascinating. Uh, it was in the East what End of London. What did you think? Uh, well, I was a bit it shocked. Like that that, that I was there with it? a priest, and it was a Saturday afternoon, which yeah. was about to head off to the football actually. And uh, who we do you were, support? <laughs> I'm a Nottingham Forest fan. We were playing at Orient, and I was about to head off to Leighton, and we were in his church. And uh, <laughs> what is that question coming <laughs> from? And uh, and and in comes the Muslim, puts his mat down and prays and apparently you know i asked the the priest just to get you know as as something that happened normally and it does happen normally he comes in and he uses the space i guess because there isn't a mosque yeah. that's accessible for him to to do so i live in streatham and we have a lot of muslims around there after 9-11 um it was very refreshing the first sunday went into the church and the priest got up the front and said right we're all going down to the local mosque because now we need you know, more than ever before mm. to build bridges with our Muslim community around here. I'm very fortunate to live in a community with a large Muslim population, but also where we have very good relations between the local church and the Muslims. Where do the preconceptions come from? 
I guess, the media. Uh, the fact is, on a day-to-day basis, most of us don't have contact with our Muslim neighbours if we're Christians. And, you know, that really needs to be dealt with. Not, you know, with these grand surveys, but in the day-to-day living. Wow, from Nottingham and Professor Esposito, we hop, skip and jump across the Atlantic to Phoenix, Arizona, where a family has written the American Muslim Teenager's Handbook. It does exactly what it says on the tin. It was published last year and it's proving to be a real hit. It's being incorporated into RE syllabuses for Catholic high schools. It's also being used as a resource on Islam at a leading military college. And most excitingly of all, one of the assistant producers at Oprah has asked for a copy. We're keeping our fingers crossed. We've actually just been named as Book of the Year finalists for two categories in religion and young adult nonfiction. That's very exciting, and you've got some more exciting news as well. (laughs) You're drawing it out of me. Well, we are in discussion with the assistant producer of Oprah. So we're hoping to be uh, able to share the news of our book with all of Oprah's viewers. I mean, when Oprah decides to champion a book, things go absolutely mega for the authors. What's the inspiration behind the book, and what do you think its appeal is to Muslims and non-Muslims? Well, I think, um, you know, life in America after 9-11 has certainly been challenging for Muslims. And there's just so much misperceptions and stereotypes about the religion that was really the impetus for my teenagers to put this handbook out. It's just a guide to Islam. It's non-proselytizing. And I think their honesty and authenticity comes across, and that seems to be the appeal for non-Muslims who are curious about Islam. And it's got some really good sort of down-to-earth tips about eating out, things you can wear, dating and proms. Exactly. Uh, Music. These are the issues that are relevant to teenagers, actually teenagers of any faith. And um, to me, the ultimate compliment has been when um, rabbis and priests have come up to us and said, we wish there were a book like this for our faith. And they've told us, will you write the American Mormon teenager's (laughs) handbook or the American (laughs) Jewish teenager's handbook? (laughs) How has it affected your life? I mean, I know that it's being adopted by some Roman Catholic high schools into their syllabus. Yeah, that's right. And I just think it's interfaith dialogue is so important in this day and age. And um, my son always says, you know, Mom, the negative comments about Muslims that he hears, they don't stem from hatred. They stem from ignorance. And, you know, how can we blame others for not understanding us if we don't speak up? So on the one hand, it's a resource on Islam as it's practiced and lived and breathed by Americans, but it's also a resource for teenagers who are maybe getting to grips with puberty and religion at the same time. Exactly, exactly. Librarians and schools have all, um, you know, are ordering the book because they do see it as a resource. And increasingly, um, interfaith groups that are um, springing up, you know, all over America, they are using our book as the book for Islam because it is so easy to understand. And um, we were just recently at a presentation where they were trying to read um, Islam by Karen Armstrong, which is a, a wonderful book, but it's very... It's very complex. It's very Yeah, very academic, serious yeah. And, and, and detailed. And for a, you know, a book club, which is hoping to read you know, maybe one or two books a month, it's just too much to take on. Whereas I think our book, many people, grown-ups, say their knowledge of Islam was at the teenage level. Mm. <laughs> so our book really fits the bill. Now, in terms of spreading the message, I know you said you were non-proselytizing, but I understand, is it being translated into lots of different languages? Oh, yes, good point. It's been translated into Chinese, Dutch, and French. 
and um, we're hoping to, you know, also obviously widen it and, and looking for an Arabic translator. Because, again, while it's called the American Muslim Teenager's Handbook, that name reflects a lot of unique American issues. Mm. But the religion, of course, transcends, um, you know, ethnic and cultural boundaries. So the basics of the religion would be applicable to teens, you know, no matter where they live. Dilara, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for chatting to us. Best of luck with all these competitions. And wow, we may even see you on Oprah. We hope so. Thank you so much, Riaz. It's lovely to talk to you too. And, you know, we're just so pleased that that so many people are are interested in learning a little bit more about Islam in this day and age. Give my salam to your kids. I will. Thank you. Okay. Wa alaikum as-salam. Rabbi, let me come to you first. Why is it important to talk to teenagers about their religion, especially if there are lots of rules about what you can wear and what you can eat? Because this is the time really to get them at uh, the the moment when they go into the playground and often at a time when they have really life-changing experiences. For me as a teenager growing up, I had mainly positive uh, um, experiences and actually the negative ones reinforced who I was and my own identity. But I can see very much how it can swing the other way. Actually, in my, my home village of Northwood, around Holocaust Memorial Day, the National Day, both Jewish congregations get together and we have over 2,000 local school children coming through our doors to hear an account from a survivor, not just a Jewish survivor, now that we've also had a Darfuri survivor coming in and speaking. And it's about their account, but then going off into facilitated workshops to talk about their own experience, how bullying comes about, how ignorance needs to be countered, and just an opportunity for people to listen to the other person. Jonathan, children can be really mean, and I imagine that if you come from a religious background and you want to fit in and there are barriers to you fitting in, I mean, is there something like this for Christian teenagers or because is there a network out there already? I think it depends a lot on the the area of Christianity. I grew up in a very conservative tradition, conservative evangelical tradition, and I did grow up with a, grew up with a lot of set of rules, and it was uh, a lot about, you know, reading my Bible every day, about um, obviously not swearing, but things like not listening to certain types of music as well. And that can set you apart And when all your friends are watching certain TV programs and watching certain types of music, and I was told I couldn't. And that did make me feel a little bit, you know, apart. And certainly I had quite a, a moderate experience compared to some people that I know who did really feel alienated from the youth culture around them. I found it very hard to relate. But what's interesting is there are hundreds of books designed for parents and for Christian kids to address these problems. Mm. And none of them have really done any good whatsoever. I mean, there are some classic books about, you know, I remember one called Preparing for Adolescence. And you can imagine what that kind of book is all about. <laughs> you know, because sex is the big thing yeah. know, for Christian evangelicals. It's about how what you're going to do. You can't do. have sex before marriage, yeah, I'm You guessing. can't. Well, when you have, yeah, when you have sex, you are married is the kind of theological position. <laughs> but, you know, it's all done in a very legalistic way. What you can do, what you can't do, how far you can go and how far you can't go and what whether you should date and things like that. And that really did nothing for me and it did nothing for a lot of my contemporaries. And what seems to be refreshing about this book is it's raising questions. It's getting people to explore together what the answers are. It doesn't seem to be laying down this is how it should be and this is how it shouldn't be. It seems to be a tool. And I wish I'd had that, actually, you know, in a Christian context. Said, what kind of youth outreach work are you aware of aimed at young Muslims? I mean, I'm not that plugged into the youth movement here in, in London. I mean, I have a, a younger brother who's 18 who goes to UCL and grew up in London and he hasn't been outreached. <laughs> right, okay. Is this a new verb? As far, yeah. as, I, as, far yeah. as I can tell. But he has a community here that he's a part of and mm. he goes to the local mosque in Streatham, believe it or not. 
I mean, I don't really see a struggle for him in terms of, you know, his questions around identity. I think the situation in the U.S. is very different. So I have um, a lot of cousins in the U.S. who are mm. young Muslims. In contrast, they do a lot of outreach work. I mean, they go to camp every summer. Yeah. Um, they're involved in, you know, hundreds and hundreds of events in comparison to my brother here in London. And granted, they do live in rural Indiana, but... I am surprised by the uh, level of outreach work and youth work that actually happens with young Muslims in the States compared to, say, my brother and his friends here in London. Is that because they don't need it? I mean, let's think outside London because London is... I don't know if it's because they don't need it. I mean, my perception of Muslim life and teenagers, you know, from the outside in in the US is that there is a much greater pressure to conform in some ways. Um, My brother went to school in Graveney in Tooting and jokes around race and religion were a staple of growing up. Now, if you made those jokes in an American high school, you'd be expelled. I mean, you would be suspended or expelled immediately. So I, I do think, at least in London, there's a degree of tolerance and a degree of hospitability to difference. Whereas in the US, I think there's pressure, I guess, to conform to what American life is and to be part of sort of the melting pot. Outside of London, I would guess that it's harder. We heard the lady talk about ignorance. Um, it's ignorance and not hatred. Um, you could argue that they're actually very interrelated and actually it's ignorance and a lack of contact and a lack Mm. of exposure that actually allows hatred to arise. Rabbi? At a major dinner that we had for Liberal Judaism recently, Shahid Malik He's the MP for Dewsbury. He he is indeed, and he was our keynote. I've got some stories about him. He was our keynote speaker, which I think says something to start off with. But he said something which really affected a lot of us, and he said, don't talk to me about tolerance. I want acceptance. Mm. And I think that's very, very important as well. It's not just about going to that level of saying, I will tolerate you. you That's still curling up your nose still. You know, I want to welcome you. You have a right to be here and you have as much right to do anything that I can do in this country. Within Christianity, there's a message that we could really take on board because, you know, there is, uh, I think, a huge lack of generosity in certain parts of... There are wonderful feelings and sentiments and ethics within the Gospels, the Christian theological tradition. But actually, when it comes to working it out in in practice, Mm. we are at best tolerant. We are very rarely gracious, and we are very rarely uh, generous with how we deal with other religions. Tolerance suggests that you're putting up with something. It does. It does. But what I see a lot is when Christians hit the headlines, for example, it's about defending their rights. It's about campaigning against Jerry Springer, the opera, or trying to keep the blasphemy law. It's always about self-interest. It's very rarely about fighting for the rights of the others. And when, for example, the Bishop of Oxford speaks up and for the rights to have a mosque yeah. know, in Oxford and a call to prayer, he gets death threats. So I think there's a big journey that we've got to, to take, and that message is so important that you just said you know, for Christians. I was just going to say that um, another word that I think is important here is hospitality, mm. that actually we need to be hospitable to other cultures and to difference um, rather than simply tolerate them. And again, this you know, speaks to both, all, all three faces in the room, I guess, that where is our hospitality? I was going to say, I mean, in West Watford, where I live, it's a fantastic melting pot of loads of different people from loads of different places. Um, and if I walk down the street without my kippah on, no one would know my Jewish identity. Mm. So actually, I don't, for religious reasons, wear a kippah the majority of the time. I actually wear it because I engage with people. Mm. And I can talk to people as a Jew. People can identify me as Jew. Yeah. So I'll be walking down the road and I pass uh, a group of Muslim young children and I'll smile and say hello. And what do they and, say? And they're surprised. Some will say hello, but the next time okay. I walk down the street, they will directly come and say hello to me. Yeah. Mm. And it's about that interaction. And we probably don't have enough of that in mm. this country. Partly it's because we hide uh, in our own communities, our own buildings or whatever it is. The more opportunities we have to interact, the better. Well, this has been a very interfaithy kind of show. <laughs> you know, you get a Muslim, a Christian and a Jew in a studio and we're still talking to each other by the end of it.
Yeah. Well, okay. We've solved world religious problems in this room. <laughs> Jonathan Bartley, Rabbi Aaron Goldstein, and Zaid Hassan, thank you very much for coming into our studio. You've been listening to Islamophonic. It was produced by Matt Hayward and presented by me, Riazat Butt. Jazakallah for listening, and whoever you are and wherever you are, happy Easter, happy Purim, and happy Mawlid al Nabi. although I don't celebrate birthdays. That's my inner Wahhabi coming out there. We'll be back next month for more halal fun. So leave... <laughs> sounds like an oxymoron. More, more on than oxy. Um, leave a message on the blog or find me on Facebook. Wa alaikum salam. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.